PBIS is one of the longest standing educational initiatives in the state of Pennsylvania. It started back with 13 original pilot schools and it has led to over 2,800 schools right now. That happens because there's levels of support that, that help move that along. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the OPL podcast from MCIU. My name is Brandon Langer, and I am the Program Administrator for Instructional Technology in the Office of Professional Learning. And this is a mini-series we are running for our podcast called Alphabet Soup, where we are taking a look at all of the acronyms flying around education and throughout the space of Pennsylvania and kind of dissecting them, learning about what they are, what are these programs, what do these acronyms stand for, and getting beyond just the title and learning more about the program and the process that they're supposed to help us with. And today is exciting because we're having a total internal OPL conversation uh, with Office of Professional Learning staff. So I want everybody just to introduce themselves, maybe what your role is and some topics that you cover in our area and trainings you like to, maybe things that you like to uh, run trainings on. Hi, everybody. My name is Karen Stover-Perry. I am a project consultant in the Office of Professional Learning, primarily working in the area of behavior. Do quite a bit of work with positive behavior intervention supports, classroom management, body indicators of emotional support, and anything that branches off from there, social emotional learning. Hi everyone, my name is Becky Millspaugh. I work primarily with our team in positive behavior interventions and supports. I also work multi-tiered systems of support. And what happens here is I usually um, operate on both the academic and the behavioral and social emotional side. So we've been doing a lot of work and system level thinking in that regard. Hi, my name is Carol Grubb. I'm also a project consultant from the MCIU and I work in positive behavior interventions and supports with my great team at the IU. And we're looking forward to moving districts in Montgomery County forward. Awesome. Well, welcome everybody. To kick it off here again, the topic of today is, is PBIS. It's a term that gets thrown around uh, quite a bit since I came to the IU, not quite two years ago through our office, but then I also hear it a lot with some of our local districts and, and talking with teachers. So I don't know who wants to kick us off, but PBIS, what does it stand for? What does it mean? And maybe what does it look like? I can start and then uh, my colleagues will jump in as we usually do. Uh, positive behavior interventions and supports has been around for a very long time. It is under the MTSS multi-tier systems of supports umbrella. It is one way to address behavior. It is part of the foundation of your school and or district as far as proactively addressing behavior and teaching about behavior versus the, you know, let them guess what I am expecting of them to do. PAPBS is our network in Pennsylvania. It is the Pennsylvania Positive Behavior Support Network. Carol, do you want to add to that? The PAPBS is our is our guide through the state team. What PBIS does through PAPBS, we provide the training and technical assistance. We support schools, family, community partners, so we can really sustain social emotional and promote the academic help support systems for all of Pennsylvania students. And PBIS is a framework. Uh, it is not a program. It is built from the ground up. It is contextualized to the school or the location or the entity in which is using it. 
So it looks very different throughout our schools, throughout our districts, and that includes both our brick and mortar and our cyber charter schools. Agreed. It's really about community and culture and doing it in a systematic way. And that is a big push because we also know that uh, statistics and research also indicate that fidelity to PBIS actually reduces inequity. So it is a big part of the conversation that is happening now with culture and then community and inclusion and equity, equitable practices. And PBIS provides, you know, not only is it a framework, it provides our, our educators the tools that they need uh, to be able to address behavior, to teach about behavior, to, to quantify it for kids and give them a better understanding of their choices that they have, choices in regards to behaviors and what is expected and unexpected within certain settings, because behavior is contextual. So, you know, the assumptions that students and children should know how to behave because they're in a school setting, we kind of uh, ask people to put all assumptions aside and to open their minds to new thinking of, okay, I, I can teach around expected behaviors and expected routines, and, and I can um, demystify some of it and allow students to, you know, behave, I guess, uh, if you use that term, in a better way than they would without that guidance. I love that idea. As a choir director, I would have 80 kids, big classroom, lots of lots of different humans in the room. And I remember early in my career kind of having that model or that that mindset of they should know this. They should they should be doing this. This should just be this should be assumed at this age level, right? Because that's what was told to me is I should know this. And I'm sure you encounter that as a group a lot. How do you go about having that leading that discussion about behavior? I think when you equate it to academics, you can't expect kids to know their times tables just because they're in that grade level. They need to be taught their times tables. So when we look at academics and behavior, both things need to be taught from a ground level to build that foundation of moving forward. So that's a lot of times when we talk to educators, we'll say, well, don't expect them to know how to ride the bus, how to walk down the hall, how to uh, behave in the cafeteria unless they're taught how to behave, just like we wouldn't expect them to already know their time tables or their algebra before they're taught and building that base foundation on how they should do their algebra or what their times tables look like. Always use the example of um, we take a bunch of five-year-olds and we put them in something called kindergarten and we take them down to the cafeteria and we expect them to know what to do. Whenever, whenever in their life, at that up until that point, had they been in a setting such as that, they haven't. So that usually gets the, oh, I never thought about it that way type of thinking. And then you can, you know, branch on from there because the, the hardest group to work with at times with the assumptions are secondary level. Because at that point, they should know is usually the phrase that we hear a lot. At that point, yeah, maybe they should. But again, it goes back to context and it goes back to experiences. And, you know, even if they've been in school since they've been five years old, each school is different if they're going from, you know, elementary to middle to high school, even to college. It's a different transition. It's a whole different set of rules. We often talk about clarity as kindness, right? In John Hattie's work, we know clarity has a, a large effect size for improvement and growth. But when you think about clarity, when we go in, in an airplane, it doesn't matter if it's the first time we're on an airplane or the 999th time we're on an airplane, we still know and get instructed on how to use 
the air that comes down, we put it on ourselves first before we help someone else, right? We all know to look for where the exits are. And every single time we do that, and even as adults, so that whole idea of providing that clarity is so important. It's the exact same mentality. It's not because they should know how to do it. It's to make sure that everyone does know how. Yeah, I think that's actually, I'm sure you've used that analogy before, but that makes a lot of sense to me because all the planes are different and all the schools are different. And I think it's one of the reasons why this might look different in different schools in terms of the PBIS framework. Does the framework provide models for how to address these things or is the framework, is that the process that you go through? Yeah, part of being in the network, we got our direction from the National Center on PBIS, which is national. There is also international, APBS. Yes, so there's a national, our, our national network provides us with technical support and it's called the Center on PBIS. A lot of people have recognized it because they've used pbis.org and they've gone there for other materials. Our We have supports as well, but we're not part of the network for the Association of Positive Behavior Supports. We also partner with those researchers so that it is something that is across the board. Now, Association for Positive Behavior Supports is international because we know that we've had visitors that have even visited the Philadelphia area from Iceland and from Africa. So that APBS was a way to make sure that we were thinking globally, but who we are a part of is the PAPBS network is part of the center on PBIS, which is the hub of the work that we do. I think that context, that scale that you just outlined in terms of the different you know, levels at which this is interacting and this is happening also speaks to the need to bring clarity to ourselves as to what this is providing us. So right now, in COVID, even pre-COVID, you know, a little bit, why is this so important? You know, what, what are those things that, that a district is coming to the network for training and support around that we can help to develop within a school? I don't know about Carol and Becky, but many of our, my schools that I've worked with closely, the pandemic didn't seem to set them back as much as some others because they had PBIS framework in place. They were able to take many of the things that they built organically and adjust them. For example, part of our curriculum that we do deliver in regards to PBIS talks about expectations, setting expectations for school. What do those expectations look like in different locations and areas? So when the switch went to virtual, they redefined what those expectations look like in a you know virtual setting using a virtual platform. So that was familiar language for kids. And they did a little direct instruction and some role modeling on uh, how to apply the expectations that they all believe in and bought into when they were at the brick and mortar. And just, you know, they were able to pivot and continue with that through virtual learning. Lesson plans were adapted to go along with that. Part of PBIS is also a recognition or acknowledgement system that also was able to continue. We had a lot of really out-of-the-box thinking on that one by many of our schools who were either issuing badges uh, via virtually or maybe they were sending mailings through snail mail. Many of our kids have never gotten snail mail. So that was such a novelty for some of our students. No, it's great. It's a great example of how having a system in place and doing that system level work makes you more agile. It makes you your ability to adapt greater. Well, and we always talk about it. It starts with the district commitment. So the school buildings 
know that the district's committed to doing PBIS, so they have chances maybe to have resources or time to get together to plan, which really helps them. And, and especially with the new, the virtual part of our the expectations now, they had time to plan and get together uh, because of the commitment that the district put into PBIS. And I think if you think about what is the impact, I think during COVID, a lot of times it was the glue that held the staff together. Today, I was interviewing a staff member as part of our fidelity assessments, and I was I was just asking very simply, what were the expectations? And she went on to share with me that it was PBIS that made her look forward to coming to school because it was, a, it was more of a communal event and more of a way of coming together as opposed to seeing the pandemic through the lens of what have I lost? So I think that when you have schools that have fidelity to PBIS, you see not only that systems agility, but you also see something that helps you get through some of the tough times. And I was surprised to hear that, but when she explained that, it made a lot of sense, right? So a lot of our PBIS schools had less stress-related reports because they were able to call upon what they had already built, just like Carol had talked about. Part of the building of PBIS uh, involves voice and voice of all the stakeholders. Nothing is put into place as far as this framework until it has been vetted and feedback has been gotten from families and students and and teachers. And that's really what makes the difference in all this. It, It is so, they own it because they've had so much say in what has occurred with certain things. This is not all, you know, uh, rainbows and flowers. We're not getting rid of consequences. That is all part of it. It's part of the balance. But it is trying to equip teachers and our students with different ways to order to in order to avoid some of those back in the day consequences as far as our infractions and those types of outlines that we have in many of our handbooks. It's trying to equip students with the tools as well as our teachers with the tools because, you know, we've also learned through all this how integrated PBIS is with so many different other things, such as, you know, having a trauma-informed approach and and mental health. You know, our reaction as adults, as parents, and as as educators to the behavior that we are seeing and labeling as such as a behavior and how we address it to make all the difference. Because part of our responsibility as facilitators are to be walking this process with our school teams. So I think us helping them keep the momentum going and being positive on our end does a whole lot for helping them be successful and to continue to go through the process, even though we're in a different environment right now. I think that has a lot to do with our great team that we have here at the IU being successful, helping our schools become successful. It's it's a huge piece. We don't just wash our hands and they're done. We, We attend their core team meetings. We try to get the admin together in the district to have meetings. We're helping them through their fidelity assessments. So we're with them every step of the way. And I think that builds a relationship that they can count on us and they know we're here if they need anything. And Carol's right. It's not just the professional development. It's the coaching and the consultation along the way. It's the technical assistance. It's not a professional development by workshop. It, it, it is a huge commitment. And it, it really takes the district com, you know, being committed to this work because it does encompass so many other things, not just behavior. You mentioned early on, particularly with PAPBS, that it's training and support. And then you're also using this term technical assistance, which 
in, in my world means something different with instructional technology, right? Which is often where to click and where to what menu to click on. And that's not possible here. I think that this that sustained training and support is essential for success in something like this. Because as we articulated earlier in the conversation, it's going to be so personalized. The stakeholders, the localization of the framework um, is essential to his, its success. Does anybody have any programs? Curious if there's any highlights you'd like to share. I have seen, uh, especially in some of our secondary schools, a real community outreach. And one of our high schools in Montgomery County, they have actually added community members and parents, family members to their core team that meets on a regular basis. And they really have done a great job of including that voice because as Karen said, this is about including voice. I've also seen a lot of our uh, secondary schools, especially, work really hard on getting the student teams, the student leadership team. The student leadership team advises and consults and participates in all aspects of PBIS at the secondary level. That's both the middle school level and the high school level. That has been something that I think has also helped schools during this transition because the students were able to articulate the need and they were able to preventatively do some things. So I've really seen that in just some of the work that I have witnessed during this time. We, we really have seen a full integration also of many different things that happen, happen at a typical school. We've had schools that have taken their usual events, whether they're trips or community-based excursions and or assemblies and aligned it to their PBIS framework. What are the expectations when you're there? How are you supposed to conduct yourself when you are attending an assembly? So again, it's permeated so many different areas, not just behavior. And schools really are starting to restructure how they do almost everything down to even their transitions from classroom to classroom when they're brick and mortar to better lay a framework in order that behaviors aren't occurring. The other things I've seen have been, I had one team that that decided they were going to do, instead of when it came back to COVID and they, they understood it was going to be very stressful for their young students, they actually made sensory hallways where they made socially distant sensory hallways where you could put your two feet together, you could take your hands up against the wall, you could go around and and go like a corkscrew. So they created it in a way that was still within the ramifications of staying physically distanced, but still gave those students the chance to move around. And so I thought that was incredibly sensitive. Not only was that really looking at not only the trauma-informed approach, it was also, I mean, it's rather school safety because everybody was physically distancing, but it still took into account the individual need for young kids to move around. So I think that when you what you saw was amazing creativity. Our educators are creative. I think in order to be in education, you have to have creativity somewhere in your profile because that is what happened. There's not one thing in our schools that are participating in PBIS that they didn't take on with some kind of challenge and creativity. It was just mind-blowing. So I think that when we look at what does this framework do, it gives you the structure, but it also gives you the space, the space to create what works for your school. I think to that point, do districts start with us at the school level or is it a district? It probably depends, but I'm just curious. Does one district kind of call our team and how does that get started usually? Carol, you want to start? Sure. It's basically comes from one of the district admin 
And it's a district commitment. Like we said, we have a readiness checklist. We have a district commitment that they're signing off for whatever school. One of our Montgomery County schools, they have already 10 of their schools in the network because it's a strong commitment from the district level. And then it permeates down through. Schools come on. Sometimes they'll come on in groups. Sometimes they'll come on one at a time. Other schools will see they're having success and then they'll want to come on. And what's nice is once the commitment's from the district, then we need a building level commitment from the principal. And then we can start working with that staff. So it, it really it's really good to show that, that we have success in one building in a district and another building wants to do it and another building wants to do it. By the end of next year, we should have 13 buildings in one district alone just doing it. So that adds to our, our power really in Montgomery County. And, and that, that particular um, school district that Kyle's referring to, it looks slightly different in all those buildings. What ties them together is the fact that the district commitment and the hierarchy that is established through the teaming and the building coaches and the district coach, it keeps somewhat of a um, continuity, but allowing for a lot of freedom with how and, and the way it needs to look at that individual school, depending on context. Yeah. In your school buildings, your administrator is your decision maker, but he's not the one or she's not the one running your meetings. It's your internal coaches are running the meetings because from a PBIS standpoint, you don't want what you're creating from a core team to come from your principal because then it's principal driven and not core team and staff driven. That's a huge thing. And that helps with buy-in with all the staff members because it's not coming from Mr. or Mrs. So-and-so. It's coming from all of our teachers and our staff members and our parents or our community members. And every, there's feedback involved in every bit of the process. So everybody's involved in every aspect of it. Uh, and I think that's what leads to success. You need a strong leader to help permeate that resources or that success or that time or to make five minutes here or there happen. But when they're addressing the staff at the core teams addressing staff at like faculty meetings, it's come from the core team and not really from the administrator. So that is another powerful piece of making PBIS successful. And you do need a strong administrator because it is about shared leadership and being okay with moving forward as a team with voice, hearing pros and cons and, and not being the sole decision maker. I think one of the things that, that makes this stand apart is PBIS is one of the longest standing educational initiatives in the state of Pennsylvania. It started back with 13 original pilot schools in 2007, and it has led to over 2,800 schools right now in the state of Pennsylvania. That happens because there's levels of support that, that help move that along. So we are network facilitators. That's our MCIU team of network facilitators. We are supported by a state leadership team whose focus is to support the network facilitators. Alternately, we support the district level coach once the training has occurred, and we support the internal building level coach. So every one of those entities is getting support. And I think that lends to itself to sustaining and that lends itself also to positive outcomes. Yeah, I agree. And I and hearing this conversation, just to kind of bring it to a, a close here, I think one of the 
things that's on my mind day in day out has to do with how we're going to move forward into the you know you know post covid environment whatever that takes we may have students stay virtual we may have students stay in a hybrid environment we may have students returning to buildings it's going to be a variety of ways but the need to be able to be agile and pivot the need to be able to address needs beyond just reading and math yes it's important yes we have to address learning loss accelerated learning you know closing achievement gaps however you want to qualify that fine we have to address those things. However, how we do that is much more than just buying something and putting it in front of a kid and expecting a certain outcome because I bought it. And what I think we've articulated today is is the need for a network. And I think that's above all, that's what I, I believe the strength of this to be and what you've proven already with the growth of these installations in the various districts. So it's just exciting to see. It's exciting to learn about. So thank you all for sharing today. Um, any closing thoughts or, or things you want to make sure that people are aware of how to reach out if they do want to learn more or talk to a consultant? What steps they should take? Well, we have grown in network facilitators because there has been such an interest. So if someone is interested in exploring positive behavior intervention supports or any really any you know, multi-tiered systems of support framework, whether it's social, emotional, behavior, academic, they should reach out to Montgomery County Intermediate Unit and the Office of Professional Learning, and they will find the best group of individuals to assist with that task. Thank you all for joining today and giving us the full rundown and really articulating what, what is so wonderful about this framework and about our network. For those of you listening, if this is your first time listening, the OPL podcast comes out of the Office of Professional Learning. We do have a Twitter account you can follow, which is at MCIU Learns with an S. And uh, if you want to learn more about what's going on in our office or uh, other content that we are putting out, you can visit us at learn.mciu.org. And if you have any questions about PBIS, we'd be happy to direct those on to the right people within our office. And if you are in a school district, you have a program you'd like to highlight or something that's going on that's special within Montgomery County, we'd love to showcase it. Please feel free to reach out to me, Brandon Langer at blanger at mciu.org. And I'd love to have you on the Opel podcast to talk about the program where we'd love to showcase what's going on in Montgomery County. Until next time, this is the Opel podcast and thank you for listening.